Hello, welcome to another edition of the Virtual Statesman Sports Desk Podcast. I'm here this time with Jason Walker. Jason, how you doing? Doing good. It's yeah, it's just me this time. So yeah, we couldn't get Jacob to. Uh, we would have a, du- a double Salt Lake podcast on this one if if that was the case. You down in Salt Lake now, or are we counting? No, me? it's where Jacob is. Yeah, I'm counting you. I'm not Isn't that quite where you to, are? I'm not quite to Salt Lake. I'm in Kaysville. Oh, okay. Uh, what county is Kaysville in? Davis County. Okay, so, yeah. I guess I'm wrong. So it's like... <laughs> well, I don't know if there's any counties between... Davis County might border Salt Lake County. I think it does. I think it does. Because you have... Isn't it uh, Davis, Salt Lake... This is really inside baseball for Utah people. Um, isn't it Davis, <laughs> Salt Lake, and then uh, Provo? Uh, Provo is not its own county. Oh, what am I thinking of then? Um, it's Utah, Utah county. county. Sorry, yeah. Okay, here I'm pulling up a map that has the counties on it. Oh, crap. Okay. Um, yeah, so it does. It yeah, it's it's only southern border is Salt Lake County and Utah County is below it. The only one that I knew for sure was the border growing up was Morgan County. That's because I did my in school. I did a county report on Morgan. Hmm. Well. And, uh, um... I think we should probably f- shift back to <laughs> back shift to, to things sports? that people probably care. Yeah, let's shift I mean, to sports. They this don't. A... They don't want us to hear hear us talk about Utah geography and stuff like that. Like totally about San I Juan think, County. I think topography is probably a bad uh, podcast for this media or a bad topic for this medium. <laughs> 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 kind of loses a lot of luster when you can't actually see the maps. Yeah, I guess. Okay, so what we're actually going to be talking about today, um, we're going to be talking about the return of sports, kind of all the major leagues coming back around this time or, you know, gearing up to start coming back in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to talk about uh, conference realignment, an interesting article that was put out by Sports Illustrated uh, about last last Friday or so, trying to talk about the potential scenarios if we went back to 2010 and kind of shook things up similarly in the way that kind of happened back then and uh then we're going to shift over and talk about a couple of players from utah state who potentially could see themselves in the nba in the future obviously most notably with sam merrill the most recent uh utah state player to kind of put his hat in the ring and give it a shot at the nba the association as they call it the association (laughs) but let's start there with the uh return of sports pro leagues here in America, across across the world, a couple other things have been open for a little while. But as of right now, the first thing to open in Utah, or well, actually it was in Utah, but of, in all of the United States was the NWSL, which came back to play on June 27th. Um, and that actually started out with a pretty good contest between uh, the Courage and the Portland Thorns. And that I put a little graphic on here to show the um, television rating it got because I was kind of interested to see the first time the NWSL was on one of the big networks. This one played on uh, CBS and it got one of the best uh, ratings of basically all the soccer that was on that weekend, which, you know, you're stacking up the Premier League, you're stacking up the FA Cup, you're stacking up the European leagues and all that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, being the first thing back in America, obviously it's probably going to draw a little bit of uh, attention to your to your eyeballs, but I did think it was interesting that it did so well. Yeah, it was a lot like the, the NFL draft where just it being the only real sports we've had in oh, 115 days or so. Um, Which seems ludicrous, by the way. I don't yeah. know if you feel the same way. 
I don't know if I've ever gone that long without some kind of sports right? to be able to turn to. Um, actually, I have gone longer, but that was by choice. Um, That's true. <laughs> you so, were serving a higher purpose at that time. Yeah. So, and even then, I actually still had updates. So, like, there was still stuff going on. I was just choosing to. Um, I was doing something else. But, again, that was also by choice. So having it ripped away, um, not by choice, is a little harder. But Yes. Um, and the thing is, I went, I went and tried to watch, you know, went to try and watch it on Twitch, but there's some premium subscription I think I have to have, and I'm not really on Twitch. So, And then there's also on TV, and it was through, like, CBS or CBS Sports Network or something like that. So I didn't get to watch the Utah Royals. That's who I was trying to watch because that's one of – that's my team in the – National Women's Soccer League. Right. Yeah. I had to go through it. NWSL. I was worried I said that wrong. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Yeah, it is. It's It doesn't roll off the tongue. None of the women's leagues typically do just because there usually has to be like four letters in it, like WNBA, yeah. Yeah. NWSL. So, yeah, it, it didn't surprise me too much that it got so much ratings because, one, it is quality soccer. I've – I honestly think the NWSL, as far as like when you ignore some of the inherent differences you get between men and women's sports, I would probably say the NWSL is better than the MLS. Just the fact that of the of the quality of play. Um, I I would agree. I would think that, or I would I would state that I think the NWSL is probably the best women's league that we have in America of of any of the sports, and I think it probably mirrors. Um, anything you're going to see in the men's game uh, as closely as anything else in the world. And what's interesting about the NWSL is they actually draw a ton of like really high level talent from across the world, which no other American league does. I mean, obviously we kind of have a monopoly on basketball in America, but we still don't quite draw that international talent to the WNBA as nearly as much as the NWSL. But, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Like you're, you're you're talking about the struggles of finding it on um, any kind of network. I thought the way that they put it on CBS for the opening game was awesome, but they kind of lost a lot of steam by not featuring other games on CBS. Because, I mean, if you want somebody to watch your product, usually you want to make it as available as yeah. possible, and that just wasn't the case. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people. I mean, it being on, it was on like CBS's main channel, right? It's mostly yep. just that I don't have any sort of cable. So most people aren't like me. So it was available for most people. I so just the, so the point I was it. making, though, the point I was making, though, is that the rest of the games are not. There was just the yeah. opening game, which is kind of annoying. But anyways, um, yeah, so uh, that that started off the series. Um, Courage got that one 2-1, and they've played about... Um, Let's see. I think they've played six matches up to this point, and uh, you you talked about the Utah Royals. Actually, I didn't get to watch that one either, but I did see a little bit of the highlights, and that one was, I mean, quite the affair. A three-three draw against Houston Dash. Rachel Daly getting um, a brace early on, and then Utah Royals coming back uh, with with a Kings late equalizer was was really cool. Yeah, I, I remember watching the highlights, and I saw you know the Royals scoring first, and then Houston going up like three-one, and I was like. And because I, I watched it because the Royals tweeted out, like, entertaining from beginning to end. And I was like, you're down 3-1. What's going on, guy? <laughs> then I noticed <laughs> right? how much was on left of the highlights. And I was like, they probably end up tying this game. And so I watched it. And they were all, mm-hmm. they were all really fun goals. It was really fun to watch those highlights. It was. And I hopefully uh, 
a lot of eyeballs still going to be drawn towards the women's game over the next couple, actually the next couple of weeks, if, if things go as planned, I, I know, um, initially they, there was a big coronavirus, uh, uh, um, a large string of coronavirus positive tests with Orlando Pride, and they had to withdraw from the tournament completely. And so far, it seems like there hasn't been an, another string of positive tests. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I can get through that without too much hassle because we have seen with other leagues that haven't started yet, um, kind of some more positive tests coming through. And hopefully that, that you know, that doesn't continue to happen. But um, we talk about another league coming back. Um, we'll get to the MLB probably, I think it's the next one to come back on the 24th. Oh, excuse me. Um, actually MLS is going to be coming back on the eighth. Um, well, and they're going to be MLS. We talked about the NWSL. You got to include I, I the know, right? league. I mean, I know we said NWSL is better, but we do have to talk about it. We, we definitely do. That was a complete, uh, a, a mistake on my note taking part over <laughs> here. Um, yeah. So they're going to be back. Um, also in Orlando. Interesting. They're going to be playing in the same, relative complex as uh, the NBA when they come back for their tournament. Um, and so the MLS are starting on July 8th. Uh, I kind of like the format of the way this is going to go, where the first three group stage games, very similar if anybody knows the formatting of the World Cup, the three group stage games are actually going to count towards regular season points because they have a plan of going back and finishing the regular season after this tournament, which doesn't make sense to me, but I mean, yeah. more soccer is always great, but I don't know how you're going to pull that off. Um, but I, I do like the idea of those, those games counting towards those points. And then obviously, you know, it goes into a, a traditional knockout style tournament after that with um, two pretty big uh, uh, awards at the end of it, having the CONCACAF champions league spot open and a million dollars, which for an NBA or a, excuse me, an MLS side is 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 quite a bit of money. Yeah, especially with you know, salary caps. When of course I guess you don't get extra salary cap room, but I don't know. Don't most I mean, of the star players end up, the... don't most of the star players end up signing for like million dollar contracts? Not very big. That's the MLS. thing is like you could put that towards a, a designated player spot if you want to. If you know you're you're verging on the edge of three, four million dollars or whatever, you can maybe sign. Uh, a little bit better player if you have that extra like million only, dollars. I feel like the only teams that can really get good designated players are the big markets. Like RSL is not drawing in, you know. Because I mean, you're targeting 35 year old Manchester United players, basically. Right. You know, well, you're, I mean, you're, yeah, you're soon to be retiring Premier League stars, and then right. And- and traditionally that's like the bigger markets definitely are the ones that vacuum those players up, which I mean, you could kind of say is a positive, uh, in some ways for RSL because they tend to spend their money a lot more on, um, actually players that can fit their system and, um, homegrown players a lot of the times and stuff like that. So as fun as it would be to see somebody like Zlatan on RSL, it's probably better. Cause if you've heard anybody talk about, uh, the Zlatan experience for the galaxy the last two seasons, teammates included have come out and say like the soccer was awful. They really did not enjoy playing with them. Cause it was basically all about Zlatan. Yeah. That's the thing. Like the MLS worshiped the, the grass that he walked on and put it in a shrine. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much everybody at MLSsoccer.com has a brown nose from Zlatan. Like it was mm-hmm. absolutely embarrassing to see them, to see that because I don't I don't really like Zlatan. Like he's a good he's a player and he's entertaining to watch, but the, his personality is just 
it turns it's a, it's a little off. bit much yeah 100 he's the most intolerable person in sports i think i've ever encountered he almost to me <laughs> has started to, tra to transcend the intolerable and just gone to like comical because when you're like referring to yourself in the third person as like a higher power it's it's just almost comical at that point because it's like I, you would just want to hear the conversations he's having with like his family and stuff like that is they like you're really referring to like his daughters or whatever as you know this higher power that seems a little bit seems a little bit much yeah it's just it's one of those people that is a sports star that never got was never told no by anybody because he was really good at soccer so exactly to him he's exactly. king of the world because nobody's ever treated him otherwise exactly have you heard the story of well this is the last we'll talk about zlatan i promise this isn't going to be a zlatan <laughs> podcast but have you heard the story about he went on trial at arsenal when he was 16 and uh arson wenger wanted him to just do you know a normal routine trial with the team just to kind of see if he would fit in with the squad and he refused because he said zlatan does not try out for anybody <laughs> he's 16 <laughs> like this is the kind of arrogance we're talking about yeah it's yeah, the kid who showed he was really good at 10, and so he made every single team. And right. Then, yeah. <laughs> That's the, the European equivalent of, like, an AAU squad where yeah. somebody is just the son of a former NBA player, and they're just getting all the attention. Yeah, it's like, imagine Zion going up to his high school coach. I don't try out for anybody. You right. Know, going to Duke. Nobody recruits me. I choose where I go, and they accept me, which I mean, kind of ends up being true for some of these guys, a guy like Zion, but yeah. Yeah. It's it's really <laughs> yeah. intolerable when you have these really guys who just cast off all humility. At least most mm -hmm. at least most uh professional athletes try to act humble. Mhm. Mm yeah, that's uh that's that's something that you just haven't seen with Slaton ever, which uh oh well. <laughs> um so yeah, I let's see let's let's uh what's the next one? Oh, uh baseball baseball i almost forgot about i actually baseball. don't watch a ton of baseball but baseball will be returning a lot of drama behind that was actually really interesting that i mean nothing on the field has been as interesting as what has gone on this off season with baseball and like you really feel for the players because it sounds like they just really wanted to go out there and play and you know the the owners really didn't <laughs> didn't want to give up very very much leverage to, yeah. to begin with well, that's just the thing is that baseball had, and I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, I feel like I might have, where baseball had the unique opportunity of being the first, like in June practically. Like if they'd have yeah. got this done as fast as some of the other leagues have managed to do it, they could have maybe been playing in June. But yeah. because they wanted to, you know, you know, play whatever game they were playing, they're going to be, what, the third? You know, they could have been mm -hmm. like the NWSL who absolutely blasted their ratings out of the park and probably will for a little bit here and baseball lost that opportunity to yeah, be in the public spotlight and it's not only you know just seeing that kind of greediness um on the part of the owners with with the way that they brought the league back but um it was announced yesterday or the day before that they're also not going to be um finishing the minor league season or starting the minor league season at all this year um uh for you know obviously financial reasons as well which kind of i mean that's kind of it's understandable uh, it's, but it's, it's, it's not it's not right. fun because that's the people that's going to hurt this is going to end a lot of careers i think for yeah. these guys in the minorities because they barely scrape along financially and they're going to have to go on 
they'll go back to college or if they finish college, they're going to just go into the professional field or some of them will be screwed because maybe they got little cake degrees to mm-hmm. try and make it in baseball. Mm-hmm. So it, Yeah, it's a it, shame. It's Those are the people, you're not worried about the Bryce Harpers and these people with $300 million contracts. They're always going to be fine. It's the minor leaguer who is making 30000 a year, however much they pay those guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, the shortened season this year is only going to be 60 games in Major League Baseball, um, which actually is kind of intriguing to me with 10 playoff teams this year as well. Because, I mean, I mean, the biggest knock or one of the biggest knocks against baseball for, you know, the past 25 years or so, really since the steroid era has just been, you know, the game drags on forever and they play way too many games. So a 60 game shortened season is actually kind of intriguing because I wonder if that's actually going to bring out some level of urgency in the players during these, you know, normal regular season games you'd see in, in July, August. I wonder if those are going to feel like have a little bit more of a playoff atmosphere. I think that would be um, kind of fun to watch actually for a change. Yeah, might feel more like an NBA season because in the NBA there's some lull when you get into December and January. But for mm-hmm. most of the season, there is some sort of urgency. Right. My biggest thing with yeah. the Major League Baseball season is they play 180, 182, right? 62. 62, sorry. Okay, I was off by 20. <laughs> um, it just feels so long, Jason. Yeah, it's, it just it, it feels like 182. I guess I was combining NBA and MLB somehow. <laughs> yeah. um, my biggest problem is they'd play all those games and they wouldn't play every single, like, you know, every team should play every other team if you're playing that many games. Like the NBA you'll play every team. Major League Baseball, you'll right. play 162 games and you'll miss like four or five of the teams. It's like, how do you pull that off? Mm-hmm. And, and to go along with that, like the whole the whole thing about um, interleague play, I do like the fact that they're going to be bringing on a designated hitter for both leagues this year. And um, I've heard some people who are, you know, kind of in that baseball media zone talking about that would be one of the things they're looking at for potential future seasons having a dh switch to both sides which be i mean it's it's a little tweak but it's probably a tweak that's going to be needed to give a little bit more hitting and you know a little bit more um ability for the pitchers to stay in the games um for especially the national league yeah it it is really annoying to be watching one of those games where the pitcher comes in you see his stats he's hitting 086 on the season yeah and it's like yeah this guy's a guaranteed out or maybe he'll try and bunt a guy from first to second or something like that just some little thing nice to see a guy who can actually hit get out there Mm -hmm. and then you get late in the game and they go through like five pitchers in the last four innings mm because they keep having to switch in a hitter Mm -hmm. so that they can not waste a batter or something like that something to look out for over these games too um I, th- I believe it was in the same in- interview I was listening to. I think it was John Smoltz uh, talking about um, we could also see a little bit more urgency from the batters, kind of that same mentality of uh, just wanting to basically swing for the fences every time they're at the plate just to kind of because you don't have nearly the same amount of opportunity, uh, which, I mean, <laughs> turning it into a home run derby every single game, which I- I'm not necessarily opposed to as well, except for the drawback of that is, if you know you're not hitting balls out of the park, then you're just striking out, which isn't yeah. Quite, you're swinging quite for the, the fences, and your bat's coming closer to fence than the ball. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the thing is, the pitchers though, I think they might see the same thing too. You might see some pitchers going all out because I mean, if you're a pitcher and rotation, like how many starts does a pitcher get in sixty games? Like, 
Yeah. No, I mean, Less that's a very 10, good point. Probably, I think. Yeah. Because they play like I once mean, a every traditional... five games or so. Yeah, a traditional rotation's five games, and you'll usually get you know somewhere between thirty and thirty-five starts in a season. But um, that's something they're also bringing up of maybe you'll see a lot more pitchers going on three days rest, four days rest, because I mean, yeah, you're you're fitting all those games in you know two two and a half months, so you're not you're going to have nearly the same kind of wear and yeah. tear on your arm, which would be that'd be cool too. I, I I'd be down for that. Might make the playoffs more interesting if you got fresh pitchers who haven't played thirty games, you know. Don't have mm-hmm. 30 games worth on their arms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on to the NBA, which will be uh, starting July 30th. Uh, as of now, that's kind of the plan in place. Uh, although there have been a couple things that might be preventing that, but as of now, that's that's the plan. And uh, a kind of a, a different format than um, some of the other leagues they're not going to be quite bringing everyone back which i kind of do like because really there's no sense in bringing the teams who are already you know disqualified from playing in the playoffs that's kind of just a waste and potential health risk at the same time so they're only a a few i think they were completely eliminated i think most eight teams not going to be traveling yeah yeah eight teams now they are uh, officially but i think before the season ended i think there was most of them were Right. Still, maybe right. technically almost... there were there were probably about eight teams that weren't going to make it. Period. But they were still mathematically possible to make it. I think. Right. Yeah. I think that just using a little bit of foresight and probably yeah, <laughs> expecting they're... those teams well, are going to do much. Yeah, because like of the was it um, six teams that they brought that weren't in the top eight. I think five mm-hmm. of them were in the West. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, we we know the West is better. That's why more of you are coming. <laughs> I, I thought that was so funny too, because it's like you're, you're literally putting on display your bias, biases towards the Western conference. So at this point, like, why are we not just realigning the conferences? Yeah. Well, I think it's, there is some realignment that should happen in the NBA just because of where some of the teams are. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to load up the standings and it's not happening very well. ESPN I have them right now. Load for me. Um, I got them if you'd like them. Well, just because, you know, Memphis is practically in the East, and I think there are some Eastern teams that are more in the Central U.S. That's probably most of the movement would be teams moving maybe from the West to the East just because they're closer. Yeah. Gosh, this is not moving very well at all. I mean, a quick flip-flop of, you know, maybe a team like Detroit who's kind of in that middle America uh, area, um, and then really maybe only Chicago are the two that I could reasonably see. Well, I guess Cleveland's kind of in that same geographical region, but a lot of the Eastern Conference teams are kind of settled far, far on yeah, the Yeah, they're, they're, def- they're definitely more far east. The thing is the Eastern Conference teams are so much closer together than yeah. um, the West because you go from, you know, Oregon to Utah, Arizona and Texas and Southern California central california minnesota yeah i know yeah i mean if you just look at the division you have i mean you have minnesota you have oklahoma you have utah you have denver and you have portland right like yeah you're covering about half the country there in one division right (laughs) um so yeah the nba will be bringing back those 22 teams 13 from the west nine from the east um and i i I, they're gonna be playing eight games to finish the season out right um, yeah. and then if the eighth seed is still needed to be contested, they're going to have like kind of a play in tournament style. Um, I'm guessing similar to kind of how the MLB, kind of how MLB does with their little one game playoff thing. 
Um, what what are your kind of initial thoughts about the structure of this and how you think this might affect um, some of the teams that were probably destined to make it far in the playoffs if the pandemic didn't strike? I, don't know, I was kind of hoping for a group stage type thing, um, hmm. but that's just because I was, I don't know. I thought it was interesting and it would have been nice to see something a little different, but I think the NBA just wants something as similar as possible because they're trying to avoid having an asterisk next to the season, which there already is going to be, you know, whoever wins is like, you know, haters of whoever team wins it. If the Lakers win it, Lakers haters are going to say, Oh, it's an asterisk. Or if, uh, especially if one of the non, like if the nuggets win it or the heat win it or something like that, then, they'll be an asterisk. But anyway, I, I think the structure is just fine. Playing out the rest of the regular season wasn't really necessary, I think, because, you know, it would have been fine. I don't think anybody would have complained too much um, about just cutting it off as is. Because I think a lot of the teams are already – I think there's, there's worries that some teams are already going to be phoning it in anyway, unless you're the Lakers, Clippers, you know, contenders. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think for the contenders, this is obviously nice. You'll you'll get to have a chance for a champion because there. I don't think there was any way the NBA was going to have on their record books no champion declared for 2019-20. That was just not going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. So they're going to do something, and this works. Um, yeah, I, it, it works out fairly well for i mean kind of the situation i think they did a a reasonable job of getting things kind of to play out the best they could i did think that they were going to do something along the lines of a group stage as well though because especially where you know you've kind of heard uh murmurings around the last two years or so of adam silver possibly wanting to do some kind of mid-season tournament um you know during a regular season so you would think that this would be the perfect opportunity to kind of experiment and play around with something like that and you know, have the ability to possibly implement that next season or something like that. But um, it is that that really interests me. And the fact that this is now going to be pushing the NBA draft all the way into October and then potentially pushing, you know, 2021 into December. That's also something they've talked about wanting to do for a long time. So you almost think that this is, you know, obviously a horrible event that's going on in America right now, but it's, you know, kind of maybe something that Adam Silver is not looking at as that much of a negative. Well, necessity is usually the driver of change. So having something like this, you mentioned maybe trying out some sort of, uh, you know, tournament thing. I think that did make a lot of sense. And then there's changes that you think about that, come about only because you have to make them you know with the draft now people are talking about some of the things they did with the draft and trying implementing them for future because it was you know it was cool or something like that so you have these really odd circumstances that force change and then you think well that change wasn't so bad maybe we'll try it um in the future and so that's because that's usually the only way you're going to get change in a lot of circumstances because people are resistant to change i'm kind of one of those people i really don't like change in certain aspects of sports because I feel like it just needs to be that way. We shouldn't be changing vast aspects to a, to a sport just because, but then you get in a situation like this and you see it and you think, well, that's actually cool. I really like that. And so maybe actually implement it. So. 
yeah i i would agree that like you shouldn't just change for the sake of change um or however that phrase goes but you know having an opportunity like this to maybe try something out i mean why not take why not take advantage of that opportunity yeah um so as far as as far as things go with the standings currently and who you thought might be a contender coming into it, um, do you still see kind of this being a series that has to go through L.A. no matter what the team is? Do you see this maybe having a positive impact on any of the teams that were higher in the standings on either the West or the Eastern side? Um, I think, you know, you probably have you're one or two favorites in the East and everything else is probably irrelevant. But, um, what do you, what are you kind of seeing how this might shake out? Uh, I guess with the one caveat of, of most teams having their best players, which is not a, a given at this point. Yeah. Well, I think just nothing about this whole situation really changes the contenders. Cause the thing that drives a contender to a championship is their stars what collection of stars, then obviously there are factors inside of that, which, you know, that'll separate your champion from, you know, the runner-up. You know, how well the stars play together and how good the coach is that puts all the system together. And this hasn't changed anything. No huge stars on contenders have stepped down. The Lakers still have all theirs. The Clippers still have all theirs. So really, I don't think this is going to alter it all that much. You know, maybe it does alter things, but it's going to be in ways that we'll never know. Did the long rest help the Clippers because maybe their guys are a little more healthy? I never really bought into them being too unhealthy to win anyway. I just thought they've been taking the season slowly and they're preparing for the playoffs. So for me, nothing's really changed. The same contenders are the same contenders. They're going to, you know, it'll be like the Bucks, maybe the Raptors, and then whichever of the L.A. teams wins out. That's pretty much how we all knew the season was going to be, you know, by December, we'd pretty much figured out that's how it was going to be. So I don't think this has really changed anything. No, none of the teams like the Jazz or the Nuggets have really gained an advantage. So it's just going to be the same contenders and it's, and it'll be a fun battle. I think for the first time we have a question as to who is actually going to win. We don't really know. We have, I'd say at least four teams that could, I could realistically see winning the title which is a really fun thing to finally see. Right. Yeah. I mean, you almost forget about, you know, it's been so long since we've had basketball or any sport going on that you almost forget. It feels like it's been almost a decade since we had those Warriors Cavs matchups of the last, you know, four or five years and the Raptors obviously last year. But, um, I, I was, that was something I was very much looking forward to towards the end of the season. I actually remember, um, watching that Kings versus whoever they were playing that night. I can't remember. Um, but watching, watching that game. Cause I was, I was really just gearing up to like, all right, now is very close to the playoffs. We're going to be, you know, seeing something different this season. And I'm, I'm a Warriors fan, but at the same time, like I, I was really kind of happy that they weren't going to be in the playoff contention this year, just for, you know, a little bit of a, a different look at the NBA. Cause I mean, I'm a Warriors fan, but the first, first and foremost, I'm a fan of the NBA and it's just, you know, too many, too many of the same things uh, in consecutive orders is not that much fun. Yeah, I think people are getting really jaded with, you know, Cleveland versus Warriors Part 4. Right. And, and there are people saying like, no, but it's a good thing for the NBA that we have the same two teams in the championship for the fourth year in a row. Um, mm-hmm. So... 
it is nice to see teams that you know not have a repeat. So, it'll, what do you it'll, think about it'll, the it'll, idea? I'll say it'll make the playoffs exciting again because the last few years I felt the Eastern Conference playoffs were the most exciting, despite the fact you can argue they're not the best teams. They were the most exciting because you didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, is Boston going to be Cleveland? You know, you know, Raptors versus Bucks. Like there was legitimate excitement, even when LeBron was still there and and fighting it all. There was legitimate excitement. Whereas in the West, it's like who's going to lose to the Warriors in the conference finals? Right. I think you could probably say there's probably been maybe three or four of the of the best five or six series we've seen over the last three years in the Eastern Conference. You know, thinking about that um, Boston Wizards series from two, three years ago where John Wall hit that that shot in game six and then sent it to game seven. Then you have, obviously have the uh, Kawhi shot from last season with that series against the Sixers. Like, yeah, 100%. I, I think the East has been uh, doing a better job at putting out entertaining, entertaining series uh, compared to the West because, yeah, you're right. Like, obviously you have Dame shot last season and that's, you know, a huge moment. But at the same time, what other things can we really point to in the Western Conference that were, you know, nearly that level of excitement? Yeah, a lot of them just feel like they're 4-1 series or 4-0. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just not enough excitement. I, I was going to say, what, what do you think of the idea of, um, obviously we don't have anything to point to in America, but in, in German soccer, they've been going on for um uh, you know, two months or so now, and they've seen a trend where the home field advantage has gone basically completely out the window. I think it was a 15 to 17, somewhere around there percent drop in home wins compared to, you know, normal situation before the pandemic happened. Do you think there's any chance that a situation like that could arise where um, now you're playing games and what are, you know, presumably going to be the same size as you know, off season tournament or whatever. And, and you're obviously gonna, not going to have any crowds or anything like that. Do you think that could lead to a situation where it's just more about the fundamentals of the basketball on the court and those kind of other elements aren't going to have nearly much as a, of a factor on the players? Or do you see that already basketball is kind of so much of a individualistic, you know, who do you have the best player kind of sport that that might not really play that much of a role? It might cut down on runs like huge runs that you'd see for a home team because there is that exhilaration of you hit a three the crowd goes berserk then you get a steal and the crowd goes berserk again and then you hit you know transition dunk and the crowd basically brings the roof down it's an exhilarating thing that fuels a player and helps keep a guy in the zone Um, and there's also an exhilaration from being you know the guy that silences a crowd Um, so maybe there's going to be something like that i'm not uh, too plugged in on sports psychology to understand how much playing in empty stadiums will impact the game itself. Because I think the biggest impact you would see is mostly home court advantage, which nobody has home court. So I, I don't know beyond just a simple home court advantage how much having no fans will impact the game, other than it being super weird. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's something that you're going to see immediately and and probably not get used to over the course of the whole tournament. I mean, like... I don't know, I listen extent, to games you'll... on mute anyway, so it might not be that different for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those guys. Well, yeah, if, if you're a normal human being who watches sports with, you know, all their... All their um, 
Yeah, just normal, normal human being. I was trying just to normal, come up with some kind of analogy. Not you, Jason. Just right, not right. You. <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to let you down gently. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, let's move on to our next segment. We're going to be talking about some conference realignment. Um, uh, but first, we're going to take a quick break. Hey everybody, um, if you're seeing this, it's because we had a little bit of a technical difficulty on the first part of the, th- uh, on the podcast. The Zoom video wasn't recording, but we still do have the audio, so if you want to listen to that, you can catch that in the audio feed as normal, and then this will kind of just tie into the rest of it. Um, and so, yeah, no, no issues there, just catch it on the audio side. And let's start back with our next topic, Jason. Um, we're going to be talking about an article that was written last Friday, came out from Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated, talking about um, conference realignment and how, you know, in 2010, we had a whole bunch of shakeups. That was basically when all the new conferences were formed. You had teams like Maryland shifting over from the ACC, coming over to the Big Ten. You had basically the Big 12 almost falling completely apart at that time and maybe picking up teams like uh, BYU and Boise State and Boise State playing in the Big East for all of what was like two months and then <laughs> withdrawing from the conference altogether. Crazy times. Um, yeah, I had completely forgotten that Boise State went over the Big East briefly. It just like what got an absolute out nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Boise State in the um, Big East. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's just something you're not going to see all the time. And so, you know, with that craziness, that fun, apparently uh, that was kind of what gave him the idea to write this article. So we're going to talk about this article, Jason, because it had some fun talking (laughs) points in it. Most notably, uh, kind of these conferences that they put together um, and and the way that they could have an impact on teams like Utah State and other, um, as we're going to call them, Rocky Mountain teams. Uh, Let's just start off with the football perspective of this because this was written as a football article and obviously we can take that into a different direction if we want to talk about basketball too but football starting out um there's six or as an ad just pops up on my screen and completely ruins what i was about ready to just say um (laughs) (laughs) there's 12 teams in the conference you have mostly what's comprised of big 10 or uh, excuse me not big 10 teams um mountain west teams so you have your air force you have boise state you have former uh, Mountain West teams like BYU and Colorado. You have Colorado State. You have New Mexico State, UNLV, Utah State, and Wyoming. Um, and then with three, or actually four current Pac-12 editions being Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah. So when you look at this, Jason, how do you think this kind of fits into the college football landscape? Uh, well, it's not a bad conference. Um I know we were chatting about this beforehand. We mentioned how the Rocky Mountain would probably be one of the weaker conferences of these like 10 mega conferences that um, Pat made. And definitely the theme of these mega conferences is that they balance everything out and are extremely friendly to the non-Power 5 schools. Yes. That's the thing. And so that's why when you have fans of Power 5 schools, they're like, heck to the no, because teams like you know Arizona and Arizona State lose huge in this kind of scenario but playing that we actually decided to do this personally i like the conference um because it'd be fun i mean i already focus a lot of my 
focus of college football to the regional, like just thinking of the Mountain West and you know all that. You kind of block out the Power Five from the Mountain West because you kind of have to. You kind of have to think of it as two different leagues, basically. Because Utah mm-hmm. State's not relevant to that. So, you, you know, so this creates a nice little league for Utah State if you're looking at it from their mm-hmm. perspective. You got BYU and Utah in there, and you know you still got some punching bags like New Mexico that are still in the conference. Um, <laughs> and you know, Colorado State's every now and again relevant. And then Utah State would also be kind of one of the punching bags, to be honest, because they're just kind of that way. But I think yeah. it would be... It's a fairly balanced conference. I think every team would have a chance to be relevant, um, just as kind of things are cyclical in college football. Some teams are good some years. So you could see Air Force maybe winning it one year, even though it would mostly be dominated by Boise State and Utah and you know, then BYU and the Arizona schools. There would be a chance for Wyoming or Utah State to be relevant. So overall, I think the conference is fine. you got some fun rivalries. And it's a balanced conference. It's not a strong conference because it's made up of the Mountain West and Pac-12, which are two of the, I mean, what are they? You have the, the worst power conference, the fifth-ranked Power Five conference. And right. then the Mountain West is either the sixth or seventh best conference in the country. So two of your middling conferences are combined to make one conference. So, And you're not even getting the yeah. good Pac-12 schools. That's the thing. You get, strength isn't going to be yeah go, yeah go ahead i'll just say you, you get the the weaker part of the pac 12 you don't even get the stanford's the oregon's the usc's or ucla's well ucla is more of a basketball school than football but yeah it's just mm-hmm. the weakest part of the pac 12 and the decent aspects of the uh, mountain west doesn't create a very strong conference no, strength is not going to be the focal point of this conference. What I do think is going to be really fun about this would be, you know, like you talk about, there's going to be some fun rivalries. You have, you know, the two Arizona schools, you have the two Colorado schools, you have Utah and Utah State coming back together. You have Wyoming and, you know, Colorado State has somewhat of a rivalry. You have yeah, Boise they, State they and Utah State have their own rivalry. Two. Mm-hmm. So you definitely have some fun rivalries. Uh, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Boise State or, uh, BYU and Utah, which is obviously a great rivalry in its own right. Um, yeah, and I think, I think and Air Force, of, Colorado State's also a pretty big rivalry too, isn't it? Yep, yep. I mean, yeah. maybe this is just the rivalry conference, really. <laughs> yeah, basically, because like everyone's almost rivals. Like Utah State has three rival, three distinct rivals, and you consider yeah. Wyoming a rival too. So that's like, you know, three, four rivalries right there. Colorado State has Air Force and um, Colorado and. And Wyoming, mm-hmm. so they've got three, and Arizona's got two or three of them, and BYU's got two or three of them. So yeah, yeah, like I said, it definitely is kind of a rivalry conference. I I really like that a lot, and I like the fact that it makes this kind of ecosystem of of a little bit more of a of a level playing field. You know, it's not going to be the strongest conference, but like I think most of these teams will really legitimately have a chance to win the conference on any given year. Maybe you look at New Mexico State being the one that's probably out of it in most years, unless something drastic happens with the realignment and their program becomes, you know, a new hot, hot destination. But, um, I I love that aspect of it. I I do like the, the rivalry aspect of it. 
and and more broadly across this whole this whole landscape of realignment i like the fact that that it kind of does get away with the or uh, get rid of the power five conferences and makes everything a lot more even because even within the power five conferences you have your one or two that are basically the the conferences that everybody looks at as the strongest maybe uh you know the sec and big 10 in most years you'd you'd say are the two um and then everything else is kind of irrelevant and then it kind of just falls back onto you know your local rivalries your you know how are you doing against conference opponents and stuff like that but in, in the larger landscape of college football not much else matters which i think would be cool to kind of have more of you know you have your super your hyper geographical conferences like this and then obviously you're probably still going to have those three uh, open games that you can schedule against other teams and so now you're bringing on a schedule where it's you have your three biggest rivals every single season and then the opportunity to have you know one or two teams out of those conferences uh, against you know maybe bigger opponents who uh, you know if if you're somebody like uh an alabama uh, an auburn uh, florida some of those sec schools um and and you're you're not having to walk through that cakewalk cakewalk nearly as much maybe you know you get an opportunity to play one of those teams and it's going to be a little bit more of an even matchup i think that's kind of just my general theme is this makes college football a lot more even on on the large playing field which i think would be fun a change of pace yeah and unfortunately that is exactly the reason why it will never happen because (laughs) you're killing my dreams jason (laughs) i know and i'm killing my own dreams too because i really like this but again it's and it's not so much that teams like Alabama and USC and I think Ohio State would necessarily oppose it, although they might. It's teams like, you know, you look at Arizona, Arizona State. They have the most to lose. The people who, you know, joined the big kids, like, you know, the people who are most vocal about wanting, you know, these big clubs to stay together are the people who just barely jumped from the little guys to the big guys. Right. Because they finally got all the benefits and they don't want to lose them. You know. Yeah, that's the other thing about this is like trying to get a TV contract negotiated with this would be a nightmare because like, who are you going to put your money on? Are, are you going to be buying a TV contract if you're you're somebody like ESPN to see, I mean, just the big, uh, the BYU-Utah rivalry? Like, is that your marquee ticket in the conference? Like, what are you, what are you kind of putting your money down on that you can say like, you know, year after year, we're going to be getting some really high quality entertainment. Like there's not, that's the, that's one of the bad things about leveling things out is you don't get those super marquee matchups nearly as much. Yeah. And you, you don't get the benefit of ignoring three or four conferences is you can just show the sec and you know, every week there's going to be a good sec game. And most every week there's going to be a good big 10 matchup and a good big 12 matchup. So I didn't really think about TV deals because I don't care about those, but (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of logistical nightmares that make this unfortunately impossible, but it's nice to dream that, you know, this would make college football better, like undeniably. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's saying it isn't is just quite frankly lying to themselves and is one of the big kids. 100%. Because they're the ones who say no because they have the most to lose. Obviously for the little guys like Utah State, they love it because they get free, you know, they get the free help up. So in a way, there is some unfairness in that some schools that have earned it to a degree, it's, like, it's kind of like communism, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, where you're, you're handing small schools like Utah State something they haven't necessarily earned the way that a USC has through 100 years of football excellence. You know. But then again, yeah. there's also a lot of unfairness tied into how 
some of these schools got. Because, you know, with BYU, there's, oh, yeah. there's a history between how BYU and Utah basically screwed Utah State out of being a relevant program, keeping them out of the Mountain West. When Utah State was, you know, a big deal in the 60s, they were the best team in the state probably. And then they drop off because the conferences fell apart. They had to go independent. And that's when BYU and Utah were able to take off and eventually outstrip Utah State. And that's probably a similar story for, you know, probably 30 or 40 different universities in the FBS right now where maybe they'd be a relevant program in their state were it not for some unfairness in the system. I think, you know, something else I wanted to touch on that kind of relates to that is I think there could be some kind of interesting storylines to come out of this as well. Like I'm looking at somebody like San Diego State and the new Pac-12 kind of getting their chance to play with the bigger competition and, you know, and, and especially a sport like basketball, which we'll touch on a little bit, um, probably being able to really push the limits of what they're capable of. And, you know, especially when recruiting comes around and they kind of get established a little bit more, seeing those smaller schools rise up and have a, a, a better chance at playing against the bigger competition and probably, you know, picking up some of those wins would be pretty cool. But the flip side of that, I'm thinking about a team like Utah State who already is almost always near the bottom of the conference in recruiting, having to go against those teams in the conference now. You're not, you're not recruiting against Hawaii. You're not recruiting against um, you know some of the, so the lesser teams in the Mountain West. You're having to recruit against um, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and like that's... <laughs> That's probably going to have a huge impact on the program if something like that to happen. Well, I think there would be a boost just because, you know, there's already an impact in recruiting by being in the Mountain West. A negative where, you know, you go to Utah State, oh, you're going to have to play in the Mountain West. You don't get to play for the Pac-12. Like, I think a lot of recruits might rather play for a Washington State or a, you know, a Rutgers or a Vanderbilt even though those teams are not terribly relevant in their respective conferences, they are still power five. Rutgers is in the big 10, isn't it? I swear. Yes. I, was like, yes. I said Rutgers. And I was like, did they get kicked out or something? They very much myself. feel like a, they very much feel like a G five team. That's actually a P five team. Yeah. But I, you know, and it's not the case for every recruit, but for a lot of them, you feel like, they're going to go to these small-time Power 5 schools as opposed to, you know, I wouldn't say Utah State's a big-time G5 program, but you think they might go there over the big times, you know, a Boise State or a San Diego State or a Utah State in, in a lot of cases. So I think there'd be a rise, I think, overall. I don't think that what you're saying is necessarily wrong. It's just because there are going to be a lot of factors, and the factors change for various – because, yeah – Utah State would have to recruit against Utah and BYU and Arizona and all that. But there would be at least a little bit of overall rise, I think, in Utah State's recruiting ability because things are more even. They're playing in a more relevant conference, even though it probably, as I said, it's probably one of the less relevant football conferences. Not the worst of right. these of these ten. They're, no, not they're, the worst. They're at least, the, at worst, they're the second worst. I haven't really thoroughly examined Okay, let, let, let's, let's kind of move on to that and let's kind of just go conference by conference and say, do, do you think this is a good conference, a bad conference, or somewhere in between? Okay. Let's start with the Deep South. 
What do you think about the Deep South? So pretty good. You got Florida and Georgia in there. Those are probably your two biggest. Miami's really good historically, but they're trying to come back. Um, and then you have UCF, who they've been trying to play with the big boys. So overall, you have two pretty dominant programs and a bunch of pretty decent G5 programs. I know um, South Florida has been pretty good in a few years. So, And then you have a bunch of random Florida schools that I can't even recognize, half of them. Yeah, so. it, you have a bunch of Florida schools, and then you have um, also Georgia in there, who's uh, a pretty pretty solid school as well. And mostly football, but occasional years in basketball, I also, too. I also managed to somehow miss Florida State. They're like... On this graphic, yeah. they're right between Florida and Georgia, and I managed to miss them. And that that's also another program. So overall, um, a pretty decent conference. So obviously, if we're just comparing it to the Rocky Mountain, maybe we can use that as our <laughs> yeah. as our measuring yeah. device. I would say better than the Rocky Mountain just because of the top of the conference, and they have and even their middling teams are are pretty good. I would say so as well. And if if we're going to move on to the next one being the great Mideast, I think this is a conference that's very, very top heavy. And also and it might have a case to be a worse conference than the Rocky Mountain. Yeah, obviously, obviously Michigan, Ohio State are your two powerhouses better than anyone in the Rocky Mountain. But yeah, after that, uh, uh, Michigan State's not bad, obviously. Um, problem is I can't recognize a couple of these. Um I mean, you have Akron, who almost is always irrelevant in both sports. You have yeah. Ball State, who's very similar. Is that the Cincinnati one on the top has left? a good. Is that Akron? Akron's on the top left, yep. Yeah, this is a Z logo, and I didn't recognize it. The Zips. Zips. Um, I recognize the Ball State yeah. logo, though, most of them, so. Well, I mean, basically, this conference is the MAC with, you know, Ohio State and Michigan. So yeah. I, I don't know if you were to look at the, the, the MAC and say it's better than the, the Mountain West, you know, currently how things sit. I think Mountain West is probably better. Okay. And what was this M on the second row? Because Maryland's in a different conference, right? Or is that yep, Maryland? That's Miami. That's Miami of Ohio. My, oh, jeez. Yeah. So you're really, you're looking at some not super good programs with two very good programs. Yeah. Two very good programs. I think Michigan state is kind of on that border. Uh, mm -hmm. They're like diet Michigan and Michigan's already diet Ohio state. So it's like, right. you're getting like three <laughs> levels here. It's like inception. I was going to make a separate analogy, but that's perfect. Let's <laughs> leave it there. Um, so if you go to the next conference, which is the great Midwest, um, I, this is one of the more interesting conferences that I've seen because it's kind of like two or three teams from like three or four conferences. And you also have North Dakota state making the jump from an FCS school to an FBS school, which is probably deserved based on their track record. But it's also kind of funny just to lump them in with these other programs. Yeah. I'll tell you what, just looking at it, unless I'm missing something, this probably has might be the, I mean, with the Rocky Mountain, maybe the Yankee Conference, which we'll get to in a minute, might be among the worst as far as not having a top-tier team. I agree. So I think Wisconsin. Wisconsin in basketball and probably football most years. I think they're better in football than they are in basketball. Yeah. I'm, I'm mostly I, thinking yeah. football. If we've been talking about basketball, I don't know if I could tell you. No, 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 no. I, I think... I, I think you're right. I think football, they're probably more predominant and you're right. Like it's really just Wisconsin and you have other teams in there who are on given years can be okay. Like uh, Iowa 
you know, I think they were a top 15 school last year for periods, but they usually tend to fall out towards the end of the season. Um, Minnesota had one of their better years, uh, you know, in probably the last decade last season in football. Yeah. Um, and Missouri's had their time near the top 25. Um, but I, yeah, none of these schools really put much fear into you at all. Yeah. If it was the nineties, Nebraska would, but yeah. Okay. Let's quickly go through the rest of the conferences. Um, I think the mid American is very similar too. you have Notre Dame, who's usually a pretty good program and Tennessee who on, you know, occasional years could be up there as well. But, you know, West Virginia is a French program. Louisville is a French program. Northwestern's probably a French program. And then the rest is really not that good. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot of the middling to lesser teams for most, like the SEC or the Big Ten or all that. So, yeah, you are getting a bunch of the middling ones with Notre Dame being the best program, which Notre Dame, I don't know, feels like every year they're supposed to be one of the good ones, then they <laughs> are like overrated. And then Tennessee is basically, yeah. they're going to be the best team in the country, and then they go 6-6. Six and six. So that, that's what it feels like Tennessee is. It's almost like Texas, it's but pretty... nobody pays attention to them as much. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> they're they're back great, every year, description. but then they aren't. Rocky Top, man, can't can't go go, go wrong there. Um, let's see. Uh, the Mid Atlantic, you know, very very similar. Uh, Virginia Tech's probably your best program. I, I think there's not much else there. to talk about. Oh, I completely missed. Clemson. <laughs> yeah, let's say when you said that. Like, hold on, uh, Clemson. Yeah, so Clemson uh, obviously the the top tier. But yeah, I'd say, you know, Virginia Tech. You should have South. just not said anything and made me look like a complete fool. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> just put that on Twitter. Dalton thinks Virginia Tech's the best one of the new Mid-Atlantic right. and just watch you get flamed. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of the the middling teams I think are better than some of these others because North Carolina can be good on a decent year. Duke every now and again. Um, yeah, South Carolina. I mean, every few years, Duke pops into the top 25. Yeah, South Carolina. Yeah. You know, Wake Forest was, they were kind of going to be good this last year, and they did okay. Then, yeah, Virginia Tech and Virginia are decent. Even NC State, um, they do pretty well um, in some years. So you've yeah. got some of the better middling teams. Um, so obviously, you have a really top-heavy with Clemson as that program. You do end up with a bunch of pretty decent uh teams below that i i think um that's probably one of the better conferences when we're just looking at you know the, the middling teams i think they're, they they could be similar to the rocky mountain where probably top to bottom they're pretty pretty uh pretty even and pretty strong i think they might just be like a an upgraded version of the rocky mountain at this yeah, point just putting um, a, like a top tier national team in there obviously with clemson that's probably mm-hmm. the biggest difference between them and the Rocky Mountain is that they have that national title yep. contending program as opposed to the Rocky Mountain, where if there were a playoff between these 10 teams, Rocky Mountain's losing in the first round every year, pretty much. Yeah. Unless they play um, the Yankee Conference. Uh, yeah, the Yankee Conference is really just not doing it for me. <laughs> first of all, the name is pretty atrocious. Yeah. And then you're, you're looking at Penn State's really your only marquee team in there. The rest of them... Yeah, that's like the third Maybe or fourth could... best program in the Big Ten or Big Twelve, right? Yeah, whichever one they're in. Big Ten, yeah, you got it. And and so it's like that's that's your best program, which again, maybe the Rocky Mountain shouldn't be too hot because I don't think they have a Pac-12 winner in the last five years in their conference. No, but 
Even when you go past Penn State, Maryland, Rutgers, Navy, Pitt, Syracuse, Temple, UConn. (laughs) 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 I forget they play football. So it's like. This this is basically the conference where there might be a reason why it's the 10th in this list. Like he probably put together the rest of the nine conferences and it was like, oh crap, I forgot these 12 teams. Where should I put them? And then just mixed them all together. I mean, you've also got UMass. Like Buffalo, like the last few years, has been pretty good. If you're just going the last yeah. few years, they might be the second best team in the conference. Unless I'm yeah. just forgetting yeah. the history of half these teams, which is possible. But <laughs> I haven't exactly yeah. followed Boston College. So No, no. Um I, I think quickly let's let's touch on Southwest. I think it's funny that it's basically all Texas teams with a couple Oklahoma teams splashed in there. Yeah. Um a decent it, conference top to bottom. It is. I mean, you know, you got the, you know, both Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, Texas A&M, Texas Tech. I mean, your worst teams really are Tulsa, who can be decent on, on, um, in quite a few years. And Rice, obviously, is, I'm assuming that's Rice. Yep. The, the team that gets beat by like an SEC team every, they schedule like three SEC teams and lose by a combined 250 to zero. <laughs> Um, yeah, but North, they probably bring in like 250 grand per game. So hey, you know, probably more you than that. Some, you they probably making a million yeah. or more. Um, probably. But yeah, uh, yeah, you're like your three worst teams are like North Texas, Tulsa, and SMU. If you're just throwing rice out, and that's not a bad bottom for your conference. No, especially when the terrible. top half are your Oklahoma's, Oklahoma States, and Texas, and all that. So mm-hmm. I think that might be, again, you, you don't have a national title contender. Maybe I don't really consider Oklahoma quite that top tier of a program. Um, although they've been in the I, I national think, title talk for in several years. Right. I think but, the last five or so years you could look at it are probably like the peak of their, their powers since maybe, yeah was it mid-2000s when they went to the title game against USC? But um yeah, I think overall the conference is pretty decent. I think it's probably in the top two or three of these of these ten, I would say. Um, but let's see. So we we've missed basically the Sun Belt and the Pac-12, which the yeah. Sun Belt is really interesting because the Sun Belt is basically LSU, Auburn, and kind of a lot of just Sun Belt teams. Honestly, you have then a Alabama couple more too, SEC so, yeah, teams. Alabama, Auburn, LSU. Yep. And yeah, and then a bunch of irrele- irrelevant uh, programs mostly. Right, um, and then the Pac-12. You have um, basically the same conference as as in most years, but you're throwing in Fresno State, Hawaii, Nevada, and San Diego State, all from the Mountain West. Um, so if you were just look at that as a straight swap of Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah, for Fresno State, Hawaii, Nevada, and San Diego State, who do you think got the better of that? quintuplet uh so it's between so you swap fresno state hawaii nevada and san diego state for arizona arizona state colorado utah i'd say the rocky mountain got the better into that deal mostly because of hawaii and nevada aren't terribly great programs and really out of the four the rocky mountain gets colorado's probably the worst and they're not even that bad yeah, I think you know Utah. No, I think I think you're right. Utah's easily come up as a as a pretty decent program, a pretty good program. 
So, yeah. and, you know, Arizona and Arizona State aren't terribly good. But overall, I'd say they're probably just just adding them all up. Rocky Mountain gets it by a pretty decent margin as far as as far as that swap. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so let's just quickly touch on basketball because we've kind of gone a little bit longer than expected on this on this topic. Really interesting though. I, this is something that I, I really, you know, this is kind of stuff that if you're just you know talking about sports with your your buddies or your family or whatever, it's like this is. This is the kind of stuff that you like because like this is probably never going to happen, but it's so interesting. Like if something like this would be actually proposed. So the which one are we looking? Are you just still talking about the conference realignment, or you're talking about like the basketball yeah. aspect of it? Yep. So like, what, what would it be like if it was like basketball or? No, I, I was just generally saying. I was just gen, gen, uh, generally saying, um, as as a topic, uh, uh, you know, as a whole, as a topic, this is something that just is is really intriguing. Um, but um, yeah, quickly touching on basketball is what I was saying. Um, who do you think the best conference would be if we're talking about basketball? And who do you think, uh, or how do you think the Rocky Mountain would fare um, compared to football? Well, they do better in basketball than they would in football. Um... Mostly because I think the Arizona schools, at least Arizona itself, is better, much better at basketball. And New Mexico and UNLV get significantly better in basketball. And Utah State gets better in basketball. So most of these schools, if you flip them to basketball, they're either as good or noticeably better. The only ones that get worse, I'd say, are Boise State and Utah. Um yeah so definitely you're really flipping this around because the mountain west a few years back was a three bits was a three bid conference mm-hmm. like two at large bids and whoever won the tournament uh, there were several years awesome. where you were getting high seeds out of the mountain west so um as soon as it was new mexico I mean, we could have or, seen that last year possibly yeah so um so it definitely be a better conference honestly i i was just looking at all of them thinking which one would be the best in football and i was thinking either the the Southwest or maybe the Sun Belt. I'd probably lean towards the Southwest in football. I think the one thing you could say about comparing those two is that the Sun Belt might be just a little bit more top heavy. Yeah. And the Southwest might be a little bit more even. So maybe some of those teams are kind of kind of knock each other out late in the season. So, you know, if you're Alabama, if you skate by Auburn, you skate by LSU, you're really looking at near a near undefeated season. Yeah. So if we're talking about getting to the title, probably the Sun Belt. If we're talking about overall as a conference, I think you're probably right. I think it's the Southwest. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as basketball, uh, the Mid-Atlantic would – oh, my gosh. The Mid-Atlantic is probably the, by far the best in basketball because you have Duke, North yeah. Carolina, and Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're adding – Clemson's a decent team on, on any given year. South Carolina can make a far run in the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even women's basketball, Virginia oh my Tech. gosh, I think that would murder everyone too. Because aren't Duke and North Carolina yeah, right. basket, women's basketball as well? I know UConn's kind of the powerhouse, yep. but in South Carolina's up there too. So you, Yep, Virginia's up there as well. Clemson's pretty good. That Actually, I think that might be, if we're looking at women's basketball, that could be the far and away favorite. Yeah. So, yeah, as far as basketball, I think it'd be the Mid-Atlantic. Um, Pac-12 would be... Pac-12 will be okay. 
You know, the Pac-12 might actually have a case on the women's side as well, because you have obviously your Oregon recently has been, you know, a a superstar team. And then in past years, Stanford's always been really good. UCLA has always been really good. Yeah. Um, Washington, you've had some really good programs in there as well. Other than that, I'm trying to, I don't know how the level of programs in basketball quite as well as they do football. I, I think the Southwest would be all right in basketball. You know, you got, Baylor's had some pretty good years. Oklahoma's usually at least decent. Houston's usually good. Yeah, I think... Uh, they really split up the good basketball schools with this, too, more so than they split up the good football teams. Yep, yep. All right, um, have we talked about this enough? I think so. For something that's never going to happen, I guess we've talked about it to death. <laughs> Well, you know, when there's no actual sports going on, sometimes this is probably the appropriate thing to be talking yeah, about. Yeah, you just, you just talk about speculation, fun things that'll never happen, kind of like the 2020 March Madness tournament. Oh, gosh, yeah. You, I mean, you bring up the Mountain West getting bids to the tournament, and I just immediately thought back to San Diego State, Utah State, and like how much fun that would have been to see if both those teams probably progress in the, in the NCAA tournament. I'm going to be honest, um, but Utah speaking... State probably would not have progressed in the tournament. I think depending on their draw, I think they could have won their first matchup, and then we kind of went like a twelve or thirteen. Which, although to be honest, I think the best money bet are twelve seeds. Actually, I think. Yeah, because no, get, I mean they you, get an enormous, but still, it is it is difficult to beat a five seed. I think that it definitely depends on the draw because every single year you see a twelve seed beat a five seed, and a lot of times it's it's that team who maybe kind of. Uh, sputtered out late in the season maybe they didn't make it all the way through their conference tournament so they're maybe kind of their confidence is down a little bit and obviously utah state's conference was a, an all-time high yeah. after that san diego state game so there could have been a chance maybe would, maybe you know, would have maybe not a they, high one but would have depended if they faced a really athletic team because that was their doom against washington is they were athletic and good defensively yeah. and basically ruined their offensive strategy yeah, if you face any team that has a, a potential first-round NBA defensive prospect, you're going to get smoked. That's yeah. just the way it goes. Okay, so speaking of USU basketball, our, our final topic on the podcast for today, we're going to be talking about um, Utah State, um, the men's basketball team, producing some possible NBA draft prospects um, in in the coming years, in the past years, however you want to kind of form this because – you had obviously Nimi going in there last year and pulling out and then Sam putting his name in this year. And I'm, I'm going to let you kind of start there because um, you wrote a fabulous piece for the USU statesman.com uh, somewhere around 2,300 words, a really, really in-depth uh, feature on Sam Merrill's, um, you know, his strengths, his weaknesses, basically a full um, draft profile and with some, fun little video elements in there as well. So if you have cha- if you have time, go check that out, usustatesman.com. But what did you kind of pull away from that when you were doing that, when you were putting that together? What did you kind of see about Sam Merrill? So I think after having done this, I'm a little more optimistic as to him getting in the NBA than maybe I was before, or at least that he could find a role. Because before I was like, he has NBA shooting, he has NBA passing, he has the smarts on defense to be an NBA defender, but just everything ties back. Everything about him going to the NBA ties back to his athleticism or, you know, the 
kind of lack thereof because it just so much of it ties into that. His offense not potential. to cut you off, oh. not to cut you off, but I do want to raise an interesting question um, before we get too deep into your actual thoughts on him. If you were to take somebody who had NBA athleticism and only NBA athleticism, or if you were to take somebody who had NBA passing and NBA shooting, which one would you pick? So I'm going to dance around the question a little bit, but I will answer it. <laughs> I will answer it suitably. Um, it would depend a little bit on where in the draft I'm picking, but ultimately, personally, I lean more towards athleticism because to me, you can develop a lot of aspects you can develop shooting it's harder to develop passing that's not something somebody really develops as much um, it's so hard to teach that but it's even harder to teach athleticism you look at some of these stars who have come out you look at Rudy Gobert and Giannis both were extremely raw had very little true skill in basketball both have become you know defensive player of the year most viable player they were raw prospects who had no, nothing close to the skill that Sam Merrill has now. Um, but they had the freaky athleticism combined with length. Um, and you just look at so many guys who end up being steals. So many of them have athleticism and quickness. And then maybe they kind of develop some skills and combine that with them. So maybe that's why I'm a little more against Sam Merrill. Because I, at least as far as his NBA prospects, because to me so much to being a good NBA player means being able to keep up with everybody athletically. And Sam Merrill just can't. But the thing is, when you look at, you know, whatever team you root for in the NBA, let's uh, say with the Warriors, there's that one guy who's really unathletic, isn't there? I mean, is there somebody on the Warriors who's unathletic? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there is on the Jazz. George's Niang, Joe Ingles. Um, and there's these guys in a lot of them. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich on the Kings. Joe Harris on the Nets. Uh, Kyle Korver has been generally unathletic, um, but a really good shooter. There's kind of one of these guys on just about every team when you really think about it. So there is room for Sam Merrill to be a real NBA player and play 10 to 15 years if things go his way. Um, I'm not saying it'll absolutely happen because of all these guys. Because for every Joe Harris, there's 16 other guys who didn't make it. Because they just, you know, things didn't fall their way. So I, I've become more optimistic that Sam Merrill can find a path. And that he can be a, a solid rotation player. Because he has skills that NBA teams want. He can shoot it. He can pass it. And the, the biggest things is how well can you hide him on defense and how good can he become on defense. Because if he can become a neutral defender really easy for a team to pick him up mm -hmm. um, if not then things become a little bit more difficult uh, the other difficult thing is that you know when I mention when I bring up all these players the Joe Mingles the Kyle Corvers the Bogdanoviches and all that the one thing that makes me slightly nervous is that they're all several inches taller than Sam Merrill like I'm pretty convinced that Sam Merrill's like 6'4 everyone I hear says that he's legit 6'5", and I just don't believe that. Because yeah. I've almost never seen a college listing that was actually accurate. Yeah, almost never. So, and like, Namish Keita, he measured out at 6'11 at the Combine. 
which was actually his college listing. So maybe there's evidence for him being a legit six five. But then when he measured yeah. out seven foot in shoes, they changed it to seven foot on the roster. Yeah. So I I do wonder. That also depends on Samuel's wingspan if he doesn't have a long wingspan. And, and the reason I bring this up is that a lot of the unathletic shooters are small forward, power forward, like they're basically forwards. Samuel's mm-hmm. a guard, and so the thing is with these forwards is that they can play. You know, look at a guy like Joe Ingles. He can play four positions on the court. He's a little he's outmatched quickness wise when you get to the guards, but he can kind of manage for the most part, um, especially if he's only doing it for a few minutes. Sam Merrill, and the thing is, Joe Ingles will have like as much as five inches on, you know, some of the guards he's he's defending. Sam Merrill won't have that advantage. He's an average size for a guard. He's taller than most point guards, but he's average for a shooting guard, short for a small forward. And so when he also doesn't have the athletic advantages and also doesn't have length, that's just more that's adding up against him. And so there's there's so many of these things that kind of worry me. Um, despite the fact that everything about Sam Merrill's game screams NBA caliber player. Everything about his body says there's it's a red flag parade. So it just <laughs> depends on if he can get a fair break. We're also worried that, I mean, there might not be summer league, you know, type games. Yeah. If they don't have, that was one of the big things for me is that he could, and we would prove himself on a summer league team even if he didn't get drafted and then maybe sign a contract and work his way onto a roster. But there might not be that. So there's more working against him than I'm comfortable with for me to be supremely confident that he will get drafted, that he will make it onto an NBA team. So now that's that's my uh, 10 minutes of rambling about Sam Hill's yeah. chances. <laughs> Okay, so I, I think uh, yeah, there is unfortunately a lot of things that are working um, working against him in this in this kind of period that we're in right now. Um, I think yeah, the the not being able to work out in person, possibly the summer league workouts and stuff like that, that's all definitely going to play against him. Um, I think I think to go kind of go back to your point about taking athleticism over na- maybe just natural instincts and some some a couple key skills that you have in your locker. I think initially when you look at history and you look at the the guards and maybe small forwards you can include in that, um, that are just super athletic, ultra athletic. I think a lot of them that don't end up panning out are the ones that are just athletic, but not have a, a ton of talent behind them as well. Uh, a ton of refined skill, let's call it. Um, I think you make a good point about, about big men. That's definitely seems to be the case. Cause you've have a, a big man who's maybe skilled in one or two things, but is basically a mobile that tends to not work out, especially with the way that the game has gone in the last, you know, decade or so. Um, so I, th- I think your overall point is made. I think, I think if you're going to take somebody who's just ultra athletic, um, you're probably better off, but especially at the top of the draft, I think that's where it really shows itself. Yeah, you know, in the first round, um, near the back end of the first round, definitely as a lottery pick, you're gonna take those players who are are ultra athletic. I've kind of gone back right now, just looking at the last six, seven drafts, and you have, you know, obviously guys like Darren Fox just, you know, scream athleticism, and he's been able to add a couple things to his game as well, and he's kind of turned into basically the best player on that Kings team right now. Um, so somebody like that, I think you're absolutely right. I think when you get towards the end of the draft, um, that's where you can kind of 
start to pick out a little bit more. It's almost like you're going more a la carte. Like, what do I want on my team? What can I, yeah. you know, fit in with my team? And to go to your point about defense as well, I think, you know, if, if he used to end up in a good situation, obviously, um, a situation that kind of fits his skill set and he can be um, utilized in a way that's going to kind of accentuate those skills on defense, on offense, and with his passing, I think he could have a really good shot. But if he ends up on a team that just wants, and you know, we saw this with uh, somebody like Jim Fredette, who always ended up on teams who just wanted him to be a shooter and a scorer. And when you're only getting, you know, 10, 15 minutes off the bench, you're not really going to get into a rhythm to get those opportunities. And that's just not going to accentuate his strengths. And if that's what a team wants out of him, I think he's going to be probably a bust. He's going to end up in, in Europe or something like that. But if he ends up on a team who has maybe some good defending guards who can, you know, switch and play those bigger players, and then maybe you're having Sam Merrill with his defensive intelligence just guarding the point guard and, you know, being able to kind of just live out there on the wing and not have to work around and go, you know, switch off with people too often to kind of, you can kind of mask them essentially in the defensive game plan. I think he's, you know, obviously going to thrive in an opportunity like that more. Um, and then kind of you can look on look on the other side of the ball at maybe offense and passing, which is it, it's so often when you're getting guys off the bench and maybe only playing those, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you just want to see those one or two plays out of them. And basically as like a, a net neutral or maybe a small positive, right? You don't want to see them have turnovers. You don't want to see bad plays out of them. But if, if he was to come on, maybe have a couple assists, maybe make one or two threes, maybe make, you know, a couple shots, whatever it may be, but be an effective player. I think, I think that's where he's going to thrive, but it all comes down to the situation. Yeah, it definitely does matter on the situation, but I think Sam Merrill's game actually bodes really well for, um, projects really well to being in a situation where he can come in and play 10 or 15 minutes. Cause you mentioned Jimmer. He's the kind of guy who functions best when you just give him the green light to score. It's really yep. hard for him to be that off-ball guy. Sam Merrill can be that. Honestly, I feel like he's better off-ball than he is on-ball in a lot of situations. I think, yeah, I yeah. think you could agree. To where he's running around the point. court or coming off screens. And obviously you want to put the ball in his hands because he can make things happen with the ball in his hands. Um, that's why I think uh, you know, I went and looked at – I saw somebody mention Bogdan Bogdanovich, which I hadn't thought of as a comparison, and I, which was a mistake because when I went and watched some Bogdan Bogdanovich, I was like, this is Sam Merrill. Like, this is mm. what he does. Not super athletic, but he can handle the ball. He can pass. He can do some pick and roll. He can shoot really well. And But he's obviously not the star of the team. He's mostly doing that in kind of that star reserve role, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, he's a high-quality six-man yeah. on most rosters. And so he can come in and be that guy you mentioned. You'll get a assist or two, get some threes, and you don't have to put a ton of pressure on him. And then kind of going back to defense – as far as him being a defender, it's mostly the on-ball that I'm worried about. Because off-ball, not really worried. He's really good at getting around screens. There was one play I remember watching. I watched it about 10 times, and it was just a play of him dodging a screen. Hmm. And it was in the hustle. He, had, he did a ball deny where he chased his guy around a screen and ball denied a, a dribble handoff. And it was beautiful. <laughs> Just because of how much there was a hustle. And I remember seeing the exact same play where Sean Berster was guarding it. And it's a small thing. It's not a huge deal. It wasn't like it 
It wasn't like a steal or a block. It was just a small thing. But it's those small things that can make you a good defender. When you study the best defenders, it's the small things they do. So off-ball Sam Merrill can chase guys. He can bother them. He can do a lot of things that I think will make him good that way. The biggest worry is that being on ball, he can't match up against pretty much all of the great scorers. And in the NBA, they headhunt. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest worry. So if you can hide him and keep him away from those switches, or if he can be good enough on those switches, then that's that's his path to being a neutral defender. Or even a slight positive is if he can avoid getting headhunted. Which if he's playing off the bench for the most part, he'll be fine. He'll just run into Lou Williams and Jordan Clarkson and some of these bench, you know, yeah. bench stars every now and again. Um, so that's the thing defensively be on offense. You see him as kind of a Bogdan Bogdanovich where he can kind of run the second unit where he's running some pick and rolls with your backup center, or maybe your starting center if their minutes overlap a little bit. And then being, you know, coming off screens and doing all the typical off ball shooting wing stuff that we see from, uh, that we see in the NBA. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to call a little bit of an audio or an audible because we've been going for quite a while now. Call an audio. That's what they call this medium, folks. Um, Yeah, so we were going to touch on uh, Mishketa and uh, one or two more players, but I think we're going to save that for maybe when it gets a little bit closer to the draft or maybe just for another uh, another time because I've got about an hour and a half of content to put out for this one. So... um, (laughs) Is there anything else, though, you'd like to mention about Sam Merrill or about um, what you kind of found when you were putting together that article or just any kind of shameless plugs you like? Anything about Sam Merrill before we uh, before we get off this? Um, I think that's just about it. Anything else, and I'd just be rehashing stuff from my article, um, which I uh, either don't want to hear or you've already read it or you're going to go read it. So um, you, can go read it for my, it. you can go read it for my full analysis, but... You know, like I said, I, I think he's an NBA caliber player with uh, what what will end up killing his NBA career if it doesn't end up dying is just a few too many disadvantages and not enough lucky breaks. So, and I think I think something that we really haven't talked about um, is is this is this is NBA specific we're talking about here. Um, maybe on the next podcast where we talk about um, some of the other uh, p- potential NBA players, we can kind of go into a little bit more of maybe his uh, potential other places around the world, which I think are still very much open if uh, an NBA career doesn't work out. If we can get Sam Merrill and J.C. Carroll on the same team. Wouldn't Although that... Maybe that's the reason why he... Did he retire? He So, so he... Uh, he was planning on retiring at the end of the season and decided to extend his contract for, I believe, one more year. So maybe this is exactly what he was waiting for. He was just <laughs> watching all those tournament games for uh, Sam Merrill. was like, there's something here. I, I would love to play as a one and two off this guy. Yeah, that would be really nice. But I don't know. It depends if Sam Merrill is good enough to play on, on uh, was it Madrid or Barcelona that Carroll plays on? It's Madrid. Okay, Madrid. I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're, you always have the... Uh, super fair climate over there in uh in madrid spain so that's always a plus even if you're not on an nba roster yeah, but i don't think sam merrill <laughs> speaks spanish though does he where did he go on his mission he I, 
I, you know, what's funny. I always think he went to a Latin speaking, a Spanish speaking country. Um, but I think he just went somewhere in the United States. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I always make that mistake. Yeah. I can't remember. I could look it up, but it, maybe who knows? Yeah. If you want to tweet out the show, go ahead. Um, we can, uh, you can tweet out the show at, as Statesman Sports. You can tweet at me at DRIN underscore sports. You can tweet at Jason at the Jaywalk67. Um, so, yeah, any other thoughts on, on uh, what we talked about here, feel free to reach out. And uh, if you want to get involved with that, suggest anything for, for coming shows, uh, feel free to do that as well. Um, yeah, Jason, anything else? Uh, was that about wrap it up for the day? That's it for now. Just can't awesome. wait for sports to get uh, back. We've, we've kind of already got it, and then we're going to really get into it, and hopefully we'll get some uh, college football. So make sure to wear those face masks. Please don't be an idiot. Yeah, PSA, please, everyone, wear your mask. I know that's uh, somewhat of a topic of discussion across the country, and especially here in Utah. Um, if, if you want sports back, and I know we all do, wear those masks. That's all I got. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Take care.